Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Dr. Nathan Kettlewell. Nathan is a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow in the Economics Discipline Group at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a research affiliate of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Children and Families over the Life Course and the Institute of Labour Economics. As a researcher, Nathan's main research interests are public policy, health economics and behavioural economics. Nathan is particularly interested in the formation of, of people's risk attitudes and what these attitudes mean for their life outcomes, understanding people's demand for private health insurance, and causal evaluation of government programs. Nathan, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, sorry. In a recent article, The Differential Impact of Major Life Events on Cognitive and Effective Wellbeing, you and colleagues explored the impact that life events can have on a person's overall state and sense of well-being. Perhaps you might start by telling us what were your motivations in undertaking the research and, and what were you hoping to find out? Yeah, sure. So as you say, the, the research was looking at the impact of a bunch of life events on, on people's subjective well-being. So the events that we looked at were things like health shocks, marriage, like good and bad events, so marriage, but also separation, bereavement and so forth. And, you know, these are events that most people will experience one or more of in their lifetime. So they matter for people. And so we think it's it's quite important to quantify the impact of these events on, on people's well-being. You know, this is interesting knowledge for, for people in forming expectations. Uh, but also potentially for policymakers in, in understanding the implications of um, changes in the occurrence of these events in the population. So that's kind of the, the motivation as to uh, what we actually did in the paper. So we distinguished between uh, two types of well-being in studying these events. Um, so we looked at people's cognitive well-being. Um, which is effectively their life satisfaction. So that's actually how that is measured by asking people how satisfied they are with their life. And so I'm just going to refer to that as life satisfaction for the ease of listening. Um, and we looked at people's effective well-being, um, and that's closer to, to happiness. So that's uh, measured by asking people a battery of questions that are related to you know, how they're feeling emotionally. So both uh, positive balance questions and negative balance questions and you know those two things are, are different but that difference hasn't really been so much taken into account in previous research looking at the impact of life events so i think our study is kind of the first to distinguish between these two aspects of, of subject subjective well-being and looking at the impact of events and then the last aspect uh, was to look at um, the time profile of responses. So we wanted to look at how people's well-being changes both in anticipation of these events. So, you know, certain events like marriage, you know, you generally know that you're going to get married uh, in advance of the, the marriage itself. And so you might expect some anticipation effects. Um, but then also see what happens after the event. You know, is there a honeymoon period? Do you 
have a, an increase in well-being and then a decrease. And similarly for, for bad events is their kind of adaptation over time. Um, so we wanted to quantify those things. When you did that then and looked into those aspects, what were your key findings? Were there differences between the, the cognitive and, and affective well-being, for example, and between the negative and the, the positive events? Yeah, so we did find that. We, we found differences, so which was which is sort of good because I guess that justified the separation of these two types of well-being. And, you know, I, I guess that's not maybe not so surprising. So it's easy to imagine, for example, a person who is highly satisfied with their life because, you know, they've got, you know, they've got the house, they've got the family, uh, they've got the job, but they, they may not necessarily be happy. Okay, so that's I'm going to refer to effective well-being as, as just happiness for, again, the ease of listeners. And so you might expect that kind of asymmetry when it comes to to various life events, and, and that's what we did find. So we found that uh, events often had different effects or at least um, different strength of effects for these two different measures of well-being. And so I can give you one really good example. So that's childbirth. So becoming a parent is associated with an increase in life satisfaction. And then to me, that makes sense. You know, that's a, you know, it's life satisfaction is kind of tied to, you know, our aspirations for what we want in life. And a lot of us want to be parents, but it has the opposite effect on happiness. So uh, at least in the short run, there's this, you know, drop in, um, in happiness following uh, becoming a parent. And, and that kind of makes sense. I should say here too, I mean, happiness is in effective well-being and I'm, I'm just mm. using a shorthand because it's really stressful. You know, it's really, you know, you're not sleeping well, you're, you know, you're, it's a big shock to your life um, and, you know, the impact and time constraint and so forth. And so we do see those differences. Some other, yeah, I guess, kind of interesting findings. So we don't find that any events are actually able to increase happiness uh, over a four-year window on net. So there might be short-run increases in happiness, but people quickly kind of uh, adapt to those. So they, um, you know, any gains are, are really short-lived and on net, we really don't see much. And that was kind of surprising. There are increases in life satisfaction. So things like marriage, you know, there are effective ways to increase life satisfaction, at least in the short run, but not uh, happiness. And as you're talking there, the, the thought that comes to mind is that that stereotype of, you know, someone winning the lotto and, and winning, whether it's a, a ridiculously large amount or just a, a, a nice large amount. And am I right in thinking that you, based on, on what you're saying, you would expect that even something like that, which, which could well be in many ways life changing, there'd be that burst of uh, burst of positive sentiment, positive mood, but actually it would start to tail off over time. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we find. And so when, when you're looking at the, the, the data, I'm not sure, but you know, were there any demographic differences that you noticed? So for example, did you notice that, you know, people at different ages responded differently or, or different genders, nationalities, family status, any of those sorts of things? Yeah, it's a, a great question. We don't have a, a super satisfying answer to that one uh, because uh, it's actually the topic of sort of ongoing research in, in this area. So for our paper, we were just focusing on average effects. So we wanted to you know, 
look at you know what is the average response to these life events in the population um, rather than distinguishing between different groups of people in ongoing work you know that's precisely what we want to do so we actually want to identify you know well who are the individuals who have you know bigger impacts who are the individuals who have smaller impacts who have neutral and also look at differences in their response functions over time a little bit challenging to do and, and so that's as I said it's, it's something that we're working on but you know I don't want to <laughs> um, I guess like talk about results that that don't exist right now or at least not in the public domain so um, unfortunately I, I don't have a lot to say about it but I think it's it's a really interesting uh, question it's something that we should know uh, and hopefully it's something that we will have more to say about soon you mentioned, if I heard you correctly, that the uh, positive impact, or, or perhaps also the negative, I'm not sure, maybe um, clarify on that, lasts for, you know, doesn't last really beyond four years. Is that correct? Yeah, so we, you know, so we looked at a, a basically a four-year window around these events, and we find that just broadly, like, you know, there is no real impact beyond that time period. It's not... You know, we're looking at a lot of events. So in the paper, we, we have sort of nine uh, positive events and nine negative events. So that's 18 events in total. It's a, it's a lot to look at. And so there's going to be a bit of variation across the different um, experiences that we look at. But broadly, what we find, at least for positive events, is that there is, well, on net, really no effect on, on happiness. And when we look at life satisfaction, you know, there are some events that are, you know, are effective at, at increasing that. So marriage, childbirth, positive financial shocks. Uh, but generally, those effects, yeah, they're gone by that sort of three to four year window. They've, they've dissipated. And did, did you notice then any variation between the events or, or again, is that something you weren't necessarily looking for? Yeah, so we, we definitely did. So... So if you're thinking about, you know, what events have kind of big impacts, so things like the ones I, I guess I just mentioned, so marriage, childbirth, financial improvements, those had fairly large impacts, you know, large relative to other events. It's, it's always very hard to, um, to kind of put magnitudes to subjective variables, whereas events, events like promotion in the workplace had really small effects, really small relative to those other events. Also, like being hired, moving home, which is, is kind of, I guess, a little bit ambiguous in terms of what direction you would expect that to go. Reconciliation with a spouse um, is another event we looked at. It actually had a negative effect, although very short-lived. So, yeah, definitely, there, there is definitely variation. And also for, for, the, for the negative events as well. So if we look at negative events, you know, I guess the good news there is that, you know, people do adapt in that three to four-year window again. It's not just... It's not just, um, you know, that we, uh, we're on this hedonic treadmill where we can't sort of have elevated well-being from good experiences. It, it kind of works in reverse too. When we have bad things happen, you know, the shock does dissipate over time. Uh, but the worst experiences were, you know, definitely widowhood, separation, big financial losses and health shocks. Whereas losing your job, having something bad happen to family, being the victim of, of some kind of property crime, those had you know relatively smaller uh, impacts. And how did you? I guess this is perhaps more of a, a methodological question, but but possibly also with 
real world relevance, if I can put it that way. How did you disentangle all of these different events from each other and, and from everything else going on in a person's life? So, you know, a person might, for example, lose a job, but they might also reconcile with a partner and they might have a child, you know, within close proximity to each other. So how did you disentangle those different pieces? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I guess there's maybe like two parts to that. So so one is that, you know, as a, a first take, we, we don't disentangle those things. Uh, and I guess like personally, I think those results are quite interesting. So if you think about, you know, so, so you've given an example, I could give another one, which would be, you know, having a promotion at work. So having a promotion at work is good because, you know, it comes with things like elevated self-esteem and you know, validation um, and so forth. So we'd expect that to have kind of some direct effect on, on well-being, but it can also have an effect through a channel and that channel is income. So, it, you know, promotion is often associated with um, an improvement in financial circumstances. And so that's two events that co-occur together, but in a sense, it's one event causing the other event and that becomes the channel through which well-being changes. And so we could try and shut off that channel, but, you know, is that an interesting interpretation to the impact of promotion? I'm not so sure. Like it's, it's, you know, I think that in some ways it's, it's almost better just to say, except that what we're estimating, you know, it's not causal. We don't have a randomized control trial here. You know, this is just descriptive observational evidence, you know, describing what, what actually sort of happens in response to these events with, without putting a, a strong interpretation on it. With that said, um, in the paper we do, you know, we understand that people will be interested in disentangling these things. And so we do attempt to do that. And the way that we do that is through regression analysis, which essentially tries to control for the effect of one event or, you know, other events independently of the event that we're studying. So, you know, when we look at the impact of promotion, we adjust people's well-being scores for the fact that, you know, in the same year that they were promoted, they also report having a financial shock. Um, so we try and essentially net out those effects of other events. Um, we find that the adjusted and the unadjusted estimates are actually pretty similar. And, you know, all of the conclusions that we reach, are, are, are certainly the general conclusions are basically the same. And perhaps linked to that, uh, actually, uh, I'm thinking that some events that uh, you may looked at may well have multiple interpretations. So, for, for example, you know, for, for one person or for, for one couple, uh, a pregnancy and then subsequently childbirth might be something that they had hoped for and dreamed about for a long time. And so it, it, it's something they're incredibly happy about. But of course, for someone else, it might be something completely unexpected and, and possibly unwanted. And, and yet it's the same event with, with different uh, interpretations on it. So is there any way from your research, and maybe the answer is no, and that's okay, but is there any way that you were able to, to allow for that and factor that in? Yeah, again, it's a, it's a great question. And well, I'm glad that an answer of no is okay, because, because I don't have a well, I don't really have a different answer. So the, the you know, the, the kind of limitation that we have here is that we're estimating average effects. And, you know, while we, yeah, well, I think it's, it's absolutely correct that these events are different 
for different people and um, their experience is, is very different. As you say, you know, pregnancy, you know, when you're 16 is, is very different to, to when you're 28 and that's going to likely have a very different impact on, on your well-being. And so we're just averaging, you know, these things together. But, you know, in the, um, in the future, if we're kind of successful in coming up with models that, I guess, identify the different groups who have these kind of different trajectories, um, well, then that will potentially give us some indication of, of that. So, you know, we might, yeah, so, so one way of thinking about that kind of analysis where you're trying to distinguish effects across different groups is that, you know, you're trying to estimate the effect of, you know, the fact that, you know, maybe like becoming a parent is just a different experience for males and females. Um, but you're also, you know, potentially uh, picking up those other effects that, you know, it's not, so just that the, the impact of the event is different, but it's also, yeah, as you say, that the experience of the event is, is different. So, yeah, hopefully that's something we can learn more about um, in the future. I'm curious as well, though, to, to ask about what I guess is the, the, the elephant in the room and has been for the last almost two years now. And that is, of course, COVID. You know, obviously, when we think about COVID, there have been many different impacts from you know illness to isolation to bereavement some people they've had a loss of income or they've lost their company and their life savings so you know based on your research what impact do, do you expect COVID to have or or perhaps to to have had on people's um, sense of well-being yeah this is a question I've been asked a bit and yeah, it's, a, it's not one I expected because actually when we wrote the paper, it was, you know, before 2020, it came out in 2020, but it was accepted uh, for publication before the, the pandemic. And so, um, so it's not something that we had any idea about, you know, when we were, were working on this project, but it's, it's, it's extremely topical. So I guess, you know, like our results obviously imply that like those sort of events that people are likely to be experiencing um, increasingly as a result of, of COVID, you know, so things like the bereavement, you know, a lot of people have had, uh, have lost their spouses, like tragically, and um, a lot of people have had health shocks because they've caught COVID. Uh, people have maintained worse health because hospitals have been overrun, elective surgeries have been reduced and so forth. So there's a lot of these events that I guess we study are happening and you would expect that, you know, they're contributing to, you know, the general drop in subjective well-being that we've seen um, since the pandemic. And, you know, we do see that in tracking data, at least we certainly do in Australia. Uh, but, you know, extrapolating kind of what we've done to this current environment is is really hard. So, you know, the word unprecedented is used too much, um, but it's it's true. Like, you know, this is a state of the world that just didn't exist before 2020. And and the state of the world that we studied, you know, was pre-COVID. So, you know, when we were estimating the impact of health shocks and bereavement and so forth, you know, the background environment didn't include, a, you know, a global pandemic. And so, you know, I think the, the ideal thing to do if you want to know about the impact of, of those kind of events in the context of 
you know, a background environment that includes a, a global pandemic will be to, to sort of study uh, those events in that context. And that'll be something that I think a lot of researchers will be doing um, in the coming years as, as those data become available. So, you know, I, I guess it's, I guess my answer there is that, you know, that extrapolation is a little hard. But was to take like one kind of reassuring thing away from what we found, it would be that, you know, people are quite resilient. So, you know, we see that obviously in our results, uh, it's been shown in other studies as well. You know, people do adapt to negative events. And we know that people have experienced these drops in well-being because of lockdowns, because of fear, uncertainty, and because of the bad things that are, you know, these bad events, these financial losses, these uh, health losses and so forth, you know, the, the kind of I guess, potentially somewhat reassuring message from, from our research would be, you know, we can recover, at least in a, in, in a sense of well-being. If we think then about some of the implications of the, the research, would you say that there are lessons in there for perhaps individuals on, on things they they can or, or should do or ways they, they should perhaps few things when they're dealing with these life-changing uh, events or, or actually are the implications and lessons perhaps more on a macro or policy level? Yeah, so I, I think there's potentially a bit of both. So <clears throat> for individuals, I think you know, what our results do is that they help people to form and manage expectations. You know, so I think if you experience something really terrible, like a health shock, you know, in the immediate after of that, I think, you know, you're probably going to be a little bit lost, like, and, and you're going to be obviously feeling really down. I think it's 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 potentially empowering to, to know that at least on average, you know, this it's not necessarily true for everyone, but at least on average, you know, people do kind of adapt to those things over time. And that adaption, you know, it can be a couple of years, which isn't a short period of time, but it's you know potentially a light at the end of the tunnel. So I think that there is kind of value in knowledge. I think there's potentially also some lessons there in the pursuit of happiness. So I think it's a, you know, it's a really interesting finding from, from my perspective. Well, I think it's, it's quite interesting that we don't find this great return to positive life events, at least not in terms of happiness. And so if people are kind of, you know, kind of pursuing these positive experiences and that's their goal, their goal is to just be happier. I think, you know, recognizing that, you know, that might work in the short run, but if you think about that as a long-term strategy for, maintaining high levels of happiness it's probably not so effective but what is potentially more effective given that the biggest impacts on happiness come from kind of negative effect uh, events um, and those negative events are generally related to um, family relationships and to health um, would be investing those protective factors so you know i mean that's a very I, I think it's sort of advice it's hard to disagree with but you know i guess the results do point you know, to, to the value in that, you know, invest in your relationships because separation is really, really painful. Invest in your health because health shocks, you know, really do have a, a big cost. Even if we do adapt over time, there is a big cost. So that's probably the implications for individuals, I guess, thinking at a broader level. I think these numbers can be helpful when it comes to things like policy setting. 
Um, so a lot of the events that we're talking about can have the potential to be influenced by policy decisions, by government decisions. And so the kind of you know, cost of those events, uh, at least in terms of you know, well-being units, is something that, uh, that is, is, in my mind, you know, a valuable tool for, uh, for government agencies to have. And so you know, I think that's, you know, again, that's kind of like valuable knowledge. And I guess to to find a level somewhere between the, the individual and that macro policy level, are there any implications that you could highlight for maybe organizations and employers? Are there any things they should be aware of when they're dealing with, with their own staff? Yeah, I think, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the group that, you know, uh, I guess I'm the most comfortable in advising here, but I, I think that there potentially are some 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 lessons there. So, um, so one thing that I guess comes to my mind is that you know subjective well-being is is closely tied to to mental health. So these these things are, are really highly correlated, and mental health is is obviously a really important thing in the workplace. So not just because you know hopefully employers actually care about the mental health of their workers just from you know an intrinsic point of view, but also because you know it actually affects things like productivity. And so even just from a commercial point of view, there's there's value in that. And so I think, you know, having an awareness of the cost of these events on employees, like kind of understanding that if these events are happening and even if they happened a couple of years ago, you know, that could potentially be explaining things like reduced productivity. You know that could be the channel for for those things that that the work that, that the employer might be observing um, is potentially helpful for kind of addressing those issues. You know, kind of suggests you know again like to make a really very uncontroversial recommendation and suggest that like investing in things like mental health programs, um, so the workers who are experiencing these things actually have that support is, is probably you know quite worthwhile to do. You know, just, probably a lot of value in that. I guess like one other thing which is a lot more speculative would be again like going back to that point that it's really hard to raise happiness, you know, effective well-being. So, you know, that might be uh, a goal uh, in some workplaces. You know, they might have programs to try and work on that aspect of, of well-being of their workers. And I guess our results potentially point to the limitations of that as a strategy, you know, that, you know, it's just, it's really hard to keep people elevated in that way. You know, you need to just then keep on doing it. Now, whether that's actually the case, I think you would need to test that more directly. You can't, you know, it's, it's, like I said, it's, it's speculative, but, you know, obviously it, you know, our results do kind of raise that hypothesis. I'll share the uh, the link to the article in the, in the show notes. But if people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere in particular they can go? Yeah, I mean, so I've got a I've got a website, um, and I have a very unusual name, a very unusual last name, at least. So I think it's easy to find. I, I can't tell you the exact URL right now, but um, please do check out my website, and um, and I keep a really updated list of the research that I'm working on um, and that I've published uh, and ungated versions of those papers. So 
please go to that. And, and I mean, the other option, of course, is just, just to contact me. So I'm reachable um, by email. And, you know, I love to uh, engage with people about research. Okay, sounds great. And I'll put a link to uh, your website in the show notes as well. Dr. Nathan Kettlewell of University Technology Sydney, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Cheers. Thank you very much, Lloyd. Lala Song, Electronic Beat Time, and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.